Let me pray. Our God, we thank you so much that we could come this morning, that we could hear your word preached today. I just ask God that you would speak through me uh, to deliver the message that you want us to hear. But Lord, more we pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to open our eyes and our understanding, to work in such a way, God, to cause us to receive your word by faith, uh, to trust you. Uh, Lord, we pray that we might be able to see and to understand the things that you have done for us. And Lord, may this not only lead us to live lives of obedience to you, but God, also lives of worship and praise. And God, we thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. <laughs> a number of years ago, a Society for the Spread of Atheism actually published a, a little track or a little pamphlet exposing the depravity or the sinfulness of Bible heroes. Now, uh, one after another, the pamphlet showed the sin of each men in the Bible, such as Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and David. And under the face of Abraham, there was an inscription that said, Here was a coward who was willing to sacrifice the honor of his wife to save his own skin. And then it gave the Bible reference for that. And then it says the Bible calls him a friend of God. And then under Jacob's picture was the Bible's description of him as a liar and as a cheat. And also where God calls him the prince of his people. And next came a reminder that Moses was a murderer, yet God picked Moses to bring his law to the world. And then finally, David. David being the worst. He seduced Bathsheba and then he had her husband killed to cover the whole thing up. And yet David is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And the pamphlet sort of finished up this way, sort of complaining, what kind of God would find so much to praise in men like this and why would anyone serve such a God? Now, my question this morning is, is how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this as Christians and followers of God and answer these complaints? Well, I would suggest to you, first of all, that we should say that everything that was written in this atheist track is true. That all the heroes of the Bible, except Jesus Christ, of course, are all scoundrels and criminals, breakers of God's law, and are sinners to the core. And this is, by the way, shows, I think, the honesty of the Bible. As far as I know, there's no other religious book that dares to display the human weaknesses and sins of its heroes the way that the Bible does. But not only is the Bible honest about the sinfulness of mankind, it's true that God saves sinners making them his own friend and children. That's what Paul means when he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, that God justifies the ungodly. So, in one sense, we agree with these atheists about the sinfulness of the men and women that's uh, described in the Bible. The difference between Christians and atheists, though, is that we see this as God's glory, not as his shame. Since we are sinners like the people in the Bible, the fact that God saves sinners does not make us despise God, that, that he would use such horrible men, but rather 
to worship and to praise him. And that's what we see as we, we come to Ephesians chapter 2. You know, last week in, in verses 1 through 3, we're sort of breaking this up into three different sermons. And in last week in verses 1 through 3, we saw that everyone is born in sin and therefore spiritually dead. Now, physically, we're alive. I mean, that's, that's very obvious, that's for sure. But spiritually, we are not born into a relationship with God. And we don't know Him and we don't enjoy that personal relationship with Him. We do not co- correspond with Him and share a life with God. As a matter of fact, we really don't even desire God. And last week I talked about how we're sort of like spiritual zombies. I know that's maybe not the greatest illustration to use in church, but we're like spiritual zombies. We're like the walking dead or the living dead. Zombies do desire things, but the things they desire are not good. And likewise, humanity has desires, but their desires are not for the true and the living God. And all of us in this room are such people. We were helpless and our condition was hopeless before God. Unknowingly, we followed after the ways of the world, and even the devil had deceived us. And even we were driven by those, our, our own selfish desires. But for those who have turned to Jesus Christ, something has happened. And that's what we see in our passage today in verses 4 through 7. In those passages, I want us to see that even though we were dead in our sins, that God is at work. As a matter of fact, the first thing I want us to see is how God intervened on our behalf. Look at verse 4. And I just want you to look at the first two words. It says, but God. But God. Uh, If it were up to me, I would italicize, boldface, underline, capitalize, you know, those two words to help us to see now, the, I'm going to give you a little bit of an English uh, lesson here today. Forgive me. But the word but, as you know, is a conjunction. Right, kids? You learned that in school. And it introduces something contrasting with what already has been mentioned. And in this case, what Paul is doing when he says, but God, is he is saying uh, that in contrast to our spiritual deadness, God has done something. In light of our inability to help or to save ourselves, God intervenes. He breaks into our lives and he saves us and he rescues us. When all we wanted in life was sinful things that satisfies us, when we were enslaved to those desires and even under God's wrath, rather than wanting to live our own lives to please God, God did a work in our lives. He intervened on our behalf. And the Apostle Paul's message is very important because it's not a message to you that your help comes from something inside of you. No, your help comes from the Lord. You know, I think we're all very familiar with Benjamin Franklin's uh, phrase that he made famous, that God helps those who help themselves. And uh, many people adopt this attitude when it comes to their relationship with God. It all sounds good. But the reality is, is that if you were dead, where does that leave you? I mean, think about it. Let's kids, let's say I laid out a dead body here on the table. I know that's sort of gross. But if you had a dead body and you said to that body, God helps those who help themselves. What good would that phrase do for that dead body? Because it has no life. And the same thing is true for us. We may be alive physically But before we come to know Jesus Christ, we are dead spiritually. And so uh, if you say uh, 
that God helps those who help himself. The problem is we're still dead. And the dead cannot help themselves. And so the Apostle Paul is saying that your hope and your help doesn't come from within you. It comes from God who intervenes on our behalf. And the Lord is good. And Paul is telling us here that God's goodness has exceeded himself in the way that he has dealt with even those who rebelled and were sin, had sinned against him. He has unexpectedly come and he has blessed us in shocking and glorious ways. Now, what does God do when he breaks into the lives and he initiates this work in us? Well, that's what I want to look at secondly, is the work that God does in verses 5 and 6. It says that he makes, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In other words, he made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us with him. But, but notice that God wants us to see that nothing that he does is done apart from Jesus Christ. Because it says that he made us alive, what? Together with Christ. That he raised us up with him. That he seated us with him. That is the mercy God has, uh, that is that God in his mercy has saved you by giving you everything that belongs to Jesus Christ. He has given you the benefits of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. He has given you the benefits of his ascension. And he has given you the benefits of Jesus' heavenly session or his ruling at the right hand of the Father. He has saved you from sin and from the condemnation of sin. And has given you all of the benefits that flow from Jesus Christ. Now why does the Apostle Paul tell us this? Because those realities change everything about your life. You know, so what that means is, is that when Christ died on the cross and then he was buried and then he raised again from the dead and then he was alive on earth for, for 40 days and then he ascended into heaven and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, that those weren't just historical facts. I mean, they are historical facts, but there's more that happens there. There are spiritual realities that give us benefit and we live in light of those realities. It's a lot like... In one sense, like 9-11, stick with me while I try to explain this. It's a lot like 9-11 when the terrorists hijacked several airplanes and flew them into the Twin Towers. And it was a life-changing event for our country. And much of how we as America operate today uh, comes as a result of that attack. As a matter of fact, there are kids in this church that will grow up never knowing the America that I knew because they have lost some of their freedoms in light of security. Uh, things have changed. If you don't believe me, go try to fly on an airplane and find out all the different security measures you have to go through. Our country has changed, and we live in light of those events. And for the Christian, our lives are forever changed, but in a positive way because of what Jesus Christ has done. And Paul tells us three wet things that have happened here. First of all, he says he has made us alive. He has made us alive together with Christ. As I said, our, our first problem is, is that we're spiritually dead. And we see here that God makes us alive together in Christ. That he comes to people who have no desire for him. They're not even looking for it. And then all of a sudden they hear the gospel message of what God has done for them. And God works in the life of those people, and they hear that message. And as a result, 
there is newness of life. It's in the same way that God raised Jesus from the dead physically. He raises us spiritually. So when that happens, God gives us that new life, one where we are spiritually alive. So those things that we once poo-pooed or we scoffed at when people talked to us about spiritual things, all of a sudden they begin to make sense. And, and, and not only that, not only do they make sense, but we, we have a love, we have a desire for God. And our heart is now set upon God to serve and to worship him. And Paul says that it is by grace that you have been saved. Now, that verb there, saved, is in the perfect tense in the Greek. And I won't go into all the, the reasons for that. But what that does mean is, is that it was an action that was done in the past that has present consequences. So he says, you have been saved. And so what he's saying is, not only have you been saved, but you continue to be saved. Not only have you been made alive in the past, but you continue to be spiritually alive as God's people. You have been raised up and therefore you are raised up even now. You have been seated with Jesus Christ, therefore you are seated with Jesus Christ. And what that means, I think, for us is that we need to understand that the work that God does, he continues to do in us. And I see sometimes in the church, uh, young people... Uh, youth especially, who struggle with this. That they have their Christian faith and they say, I believe in God and I believe Jesus died for my sins and all of that. And then over here on this side, those realities don't seem to transfer to their life. They're out partying on the weekend. They're sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, they're doing things that don't reflect that they truly trust in Jesus Christ. They're living their lives to fulfill their own desires and their wishes. It's like they're, they're looking for something. But that's not the salvation that God gives us people. The salvation that he has given us carries over to a present reality in our lives. And it doesn't mean that we're perfect. We still can be tempted and we still can fall into sin. That's why each week we have a time of confessing our sins before the Lord because we can do that. But, he has set us free that we might walk in obedience to him. You see, God has not merely given us a, a jump start in terms of our spiritual life, hoping that we will continue as Christians. What God has done in the past has fundamentally changed who we are and affects the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul says, if you would, you can take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, verses 5 through 11, we see that sense of this connection between what Christ has done and our lives. He says in Romans, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, that is our, our selfish desires, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never again or will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Wow, that could be a sermon in and of itself. But the point is, is that as we are united with Christ, that we are called to walk in the realities of what Christ has, has done for us. 
It sort of reminds us of the story of Lazarus in the Bible in John chapter 11. You know, when Jesus heard that Lazarus, his friend, was sick, he actually stayed where he was at for two extra days. And finally, Lazarus died and was buried. And Jesus shows up and he found that Lazarus was already in the tomb and had been in there for four days. So was Lazarus dead? Yes, Lazarus was dead. Lazarus was very dead. As a matter of fact, when when Jesus said, let's roll the stone away from the front of the tomb, Martha, Lazarus' brother, said, but Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. I mean, his body had already started to decompose. But Jesus said, go ahead and roll the stone away anyway. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. What happened? Lazarus came out. And even though Lazarus was dead, Jesus spoke and he had life. And that's the picture of what God does in our hearts when we hear the gospel message and it just clicks. It just makes sense when the Spirit of God works in us and we find that we are no longer spiritually dead, but we are now spiritually alive. And, and, and we see that uh, not only and what Christ did uh, in the world, but we see it as we hear the gospel message. So he makes us alive, but he also sets us free. Look at what else he says in verse 5. He said, and he raised us up with him. Now, I think oftentimes when we think of Christ being raised up, we think of the, the resurrection. But he's actually talking here about the ascension. And this oftentimes is a teaching that the church doesn't talk about much. But if you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is standing there talking to his disciples and all of a sudden he is lifted up into heaven, it says, until a cloud covered him up. And they're all, the disciples are looking up at the sky like, wow, where'd he go? And two angels appear and said, what are you guys looking for? He's going to come back in the same way he did. But Christ is no longer here upon this earth, but he has been raised up. In, in heaven, and we find that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, which we'll talk about that in a minute. But earlier, Paul said that not only were we dead in our sins, but we were enslaved in our sins. Sin sort of seeks to, to drag us down and to rule over us. You know, it just seems like no matter what we try to do to not sin, we can't help from doing that. It's, it's a little bit like quicksand. The more that we struggle in quicksand, the sooner that you'll sink. And sin's much the same way. No matter how much we try to be free from sin, it seems to have its bondage over us. But Paul wants us to see that Christ not only has given us spiritual life, but he has freed us. He has rescued us from that quicksand. It's like he has pulled us out and we are no longer bound to sin. We have a new heart, we have a new mind, and a new will. As I said, it doesn't mean that we don't ever sin, we still can be tempted by our own desires or by Satan, maybe by the things of the world that we see, to, to lapse back into sin. But we are not forced to do so. We have a choice that we don't have to sin. We have been set free from the chains of sin that binds us in darkness and misery. And then we see not only are we alive and we are free, but we are secured forever. Uh, he says that we are seated, that he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Uh, Jesus um, not only has been seated and rules over all things in heaven, but one day we will as well. He says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, 
we also reign with him. So there is that promise of the future. But what Paul's talking about here is already ours. God has already secured this for us. Um, as we think about our Christian life, I see Christians oftentimes struggle far too much in the Christian life. We feel like leaves sort of being blown around in the Kansas wind, just sort of in every different direction. You know, we might even look at the world and think it's out of control. And I see many Christians who get very depressed and discouraged when they watch the news and the things that happened in this world because they tie themselves so much to the things of this world. But Paul wants us to see that it is what God has done that defines us, that Christ sits in heaven and he rules over all things. So you are not defined by your struggle with sin. You are not defined by the, the standards of the world. You are not defined by what the devil is seeking to do in your life to tempt you. You are not defined by your weakness, but you are defined by who Jesus Christ is. And Jesus never changes. Look, if you would, back to Ephesians chapter 1, the, at the end of the previous chapter. In verse 22, uh, it says, And he put all things under his feet. In other words, God the Father put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, kids, do you remember what I told you when I said that we talked about what it means to put stuff under your feet? What did they do in the Old Testament? They would take a king that they conquered and they would lay that king on the ground and the conquering king would put his foot on his neck to show that I have conquered you. You were my enemies. And then oftentimes right after that, they executed him. But anyway, but they, they showed that they conquered him. And that's what the picture is here, that Jesus is saying that he has conquered all his enemies, sin and death and all these things. And all these things have been placed under his feet. And so as we stand as Christians today, even in this world that is very much opposed to the things of God, that we need not to worry. Uh, also, I want us to understand that if Jesus is the one who gives us life and he rules over all things, then how could anything we do undo what Jesus Christ has done? How could anything that anyone does uh, keep us from trusting in him? Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So how much more secure can we be than that to trust in him? And so God has given us everything in our salvation uh, um, to, to walk in him. But what was God's purpose? Why did he do that? And that's the final thing I want to talk about this morning. Why does God do all this? What, what motivated God to intervene on our behalf? Did God look down on us and he say, you know, they're just wonderful, you know, uh, and I just can't help myself. I just need to help these people that are here on earth. Or did he look down and he say, you know, some people down there are just better than other people. And, and I want to go I want to go help them. Or maybe he said there are people there. They're just trying really hard, but they just can't make it. And so I want to go help them. No, not at all. It's interesting that when Paul talks about why God did, did this in verses four and five, that he doesn't mention anything about us. Not not even a word. 
Look at what he says in verse 4. Er, yeah. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, and then in verse 5, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and then verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, God intervened on the behalf of sinners because of God's mercy, his compassion towards us, his, his pity on us, but also because of his love, his own self-generated concern for our well-being. Even he did so because of his grace, because of his undeserved favor for us. Now, I, w I want to explain this idea of grace just a little bit. And I know many of you have grown up in the church and you're like, Pastor Rick, I know what grace is. You don't need to explain this to me. But I think we do sometimes get confused as to what grace is. You know, grace is typically described as God's unmerited favor. Okay, now merited favor is exactly what it sounds like. I do something, so I deserve something. You know, you, you should give me this because I've done that for you. I think a great example of that is a paycheck. You know, I worked hard for my money, and you give me only what I deserve. That's merited favor. Okay, unmerited favor is that you just come up and give me something even though I've not done anything. You know, let's say after the meal, somebody comes up to me. This is not a hint, but it wouldn't hurt. Okay, after the meal, and somebody just says, Pastor Rick, I just want to give you a piece of chocolate cake. I would say, thank you so much. That's unmerited favor. That's a good thing. I like that. Okay, you gave me something even though I didn't have an opportunity to do something for you. But that's not really what God's grace is like. Grace is not the unmerited favor of God as, as much the demerited favor of God. The grace is God showing his favor to those who have mocked him, who have rebelled against him, who have sinned, who have absolutely done nothing to deserve his grace. It is the opposite of what we oftentimes think about. So maybe a better picture of God's grace is, is if I go back there to have our lunch after church and somebody just beats the snot out of me. Okay, just beats me to a bloody pulp. And rather than retaliating against them, I get up and I walk over and I grab a piece of chocolate cake and I say, chocolate cake is my favorite. I want you to have this. That's more what God has done for us. That he has given us something that we totally do not deserve. Because God has also shown us, as we see in these verses, his kindness. Because of the spirit of generosity and overflowing that wells up from the heart of God, he has this kindness towards us. And so as you see this morning, as, as God looks at us, as he intervenes, he doesn't do so because we are something great. It's not because he has some, seen something good in us, but it's because he, of his character. It is because he is a merciful, loving, gracious, kind God who has chosen to show us his, his mercy. That's his motivation. Now, you know, most likely you've watched TV or something on Netflix or Hulu or something like that. 
And you've seen a TV plot where someone is in need, and so they sort of trick somebody else into helping them because uh, they're convinced that if they just came around and, and asked them for their help, that they, that person wouldn't help them because of who they really are. And so they, they trick them. And sometimes I wonder if we might think that God operates that way. But I'm here to tell you that he does not. He knows exactly who we are. He knows you better than you know your spouse. He knows you better than your best friend knows you. Kids, he knows you better than your parents know you. Actually, the Bible tells us he knows us better than we know ourselves. And all in spite of that, God reaches out and he takes the initiative and he intervenes in our lives. And even when we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we are the ones who have run from God and rebelled against him. But he has not run from us. And brothers and sisters, this is a sweet comfort for us to those who are in Jesus Christ, to know that there will never be another shoe to drop. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like things are just going really well in your life and then all of a sudden you just sort of think, okay, when's the other shoe going to drop? When is something going to happen that's just sort of going to mess this all up? Well, I want you to know that with God, that never happens. There is no other bad thing that God can find out that would cause him to all of a sudden say, you know what, actually I don't want a relationship with this person. He knows us completely. So if you are here today and you think that God could never love me or be merciful to me because of what I have done, I want you to know that you are mistaken. God knows everything about you. He even sent his son to suffer the punishment for every sin that you have committed, every sin that you commit right now, and every sin that you will commit in the future. God is moving toward you in mercy and a love and grace and kindness even when you're dead in your sins and your trespasses. God's love for us is a, 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 it's a mega love. It's not a stingy love. And it's not even an ordinary love. I know for us, oftentimes, we want to be loved by other people. And we seek for that love all the time in our relationships with other people. But the love that God has for us even dwarfs that. And then he says, finally, that he has done this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, we who trust in Christ are the living picture of God's grace. God has done all this for his glory. In one sense, the saints in heaven are the trophies of God that he will look out and there in heaven will be this vast number of people from every tribe and people and nation. It's going to be a really mixed group. okay? And none of the people that are there in heaven will deserve to be there. But instead, God has merely shown his great mercy to them. As one commentator uh, put it, he says, well, you know, when you see a marvelous painting on a wall, he said, you don't typically look at it and say, huh, I wonder what kind of canvas they used on that. Or, huh, I wonder what kind of brush, what name brand of brush that they used on that painting. Usually what we say is, wow, who painted this picture? This is incredible. And you want to know about the author. And it's much the same way. That when we stand in heaven before God, that people will go, wow, what kind of God 
would it be that would reach out to people like these people and to show his mercy and his love and to provide a way for them to be with him in all eternity and to know him. You you see, who we are in Christ points to the character of God and his glory. Now, we know now that the church is not perfect. Okay, one that there are people in the church who say that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are still dead in their sins. They are still selfish. They still think about themselves. And why they say they're a Christian, that's not really true. So the church looks a lot different here on earth. The other reality is we still do struggle with sin. We are not under the power of sin. We don't have to sin, but sometimes we choose to sin. And so therefore the church looks pretty, sometimes yucky now. And Christians are less than perfect. But one day in glory when we stand before him, we will see that perfect reflection of who our God is. And we will worship and we will praise him. You see, God is a God who delights in showing mercy. You remember the atheist tract that I was talking about? They were complaining about how God could fellowship with scoundrels like those found in the Bible. Well, the answer to the complaint that the atheists have is that God delights to show mercy. Yes, Abraham was a coward and an idolater, but God delights in showing mercy. So Abraham was called to walk with God and become a forerunner in faith. Jacob was a liar and a cheat, but God delights in showing mercy. So Jacob made a man of integrity And he became the father of God's people. Moses was a man of violence. He murdered a man, but God delights in mercy. And so Moses was later described in the Bible as the meekest of all the men upon the earth. And in this way, Moses was fit to be God's ambassador and lawgiver. David was an adulterer and a murderer, but God who is rich in mercy enabled him to repent, that is, to turn from his sin, just as he will allow you and me to repent of our sins and to be forgiven. David prayed in Psalm 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. That's a prayer he prayed after he committed that sin with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed. And God had mercy on David, And he restored him fully. Where are you this morning? Where are you this morning in your relationship with God? Are you trusting in him? Or are you trusting in yourself? He is here this morning. And he wants you to know that he has intervened for you. Would you trust him today? Let's bow our heads for a time of silence this morning. Oh God, we come this morning very humbled by the fact that you would reach out to us even in our helplessness and in our hopelessness. And we come this morning, uh, Lord, as as, uh, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we don't come haughty or, or thinking better of ourselves, God. We are just overwhelmed. 
that you would love us so much. We ask for your forgiveness, God, for the times that we sin against you. And we act like more like we did before we came to faith in Christ than after. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to love other people as you have loved us. Uh, Lord, to tell others of the good news that they can be set free from their sin, that they can be made alive. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would work in our church to be a church that is gracious and a church that is bold in sharing the love of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. Father, we just thank you so much uh, for your goodness and your graces. Please cause us to be people who worship you for the things that you have done for us. We thank you for that honor and that privilege this morning to gather to do this. That we don't have to wait till we get to heaven with the other saints to worship you. But we can even now um, proclaim what you have done for us. May we lift our voices up much like the angels did when they came on that night when you were born. And heralded the, the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen.